Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette, discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free, <laughs> or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. <laughs> Hello everyone, may the power of Christ compel you and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the continental connecting movie review podcast with me, Dan, doing deep dives into 90s hip hop down here in Melbourne, Australia. And me, Conrad, watching original films in the cinema instead of their reboot calls in Cambridge, UK. <laughs> uh, in this podcast, we discuss <laughs> overlooked genre films sci-fi, horror, and fantasy, because crucifixions, redeemed religious men, and satanic evil forces. Hang on, didn't we just cover this in the last episode? (laughs) Hello, Conrad. (laughs) Hello, Dan. And of course, we are joined as promised by the very, very talented writer, filmmaker, and video essayist, it's Surge of Cold Crash Pictures. Hey, Hello, Surge. welcome Hello. back. <laughs> Again. Hi, thanks for having me on. <laughs> well, it's certainly spooky season and we are yeah, celebrating the release of a very particular film. Mm-hmm. Yes, as I mentioned in my intro, I went to see the original film, The Exorcist, ah, 50 years old, wow. in the cinema for its new 4K remaster. And uh, it turned out that it was the director's cut thing with the spider walk and everything in it, which Mm. I don't actually like as much as the original, but it was nice to see it on the big screen for the very first time. Wow. That was fun. Yeah. Wow. That's, uh, yeah, that would have been quite the experience. Mm. And meanwhile, you're getting into hip hop. (laughs) I don't know. I've always dabbled with hip hop, but yeah, doing deep dives into 90s hip hop this uh, for the last couple of weeks for some reason. I don't know. Getting into Wu Tang Clan and all of the (laughs) spin off solar albums with the the Jizza and the Rizza and Raekwon and. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 my musical journey that I, I, I go on. I just go down certain paths of, of music and, and just get completely immersed. <laughs> well, why not? Is this in terms of listening and reading, or do you actually do some jamming sessions in the style of? Uh, I, I will. I, I do have a hip-hop album that I have in mind. I'm going to collaborate with Ooh. our good friend Evan uh, at some stage. So this is the idea. I don't, I'm not sure whether I've... I've told you this but I, I found i found a whole bunch of tapes from when i was a kid oh, yeah, of yeah. um just like recitals and 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 just piano compositions that i i did because i grew up listening to a lot of classical music and so my idea was to sample myself my teenage self into <laughs> hip-hop <laughs> so, why not but that's that's an idea maybe down the track yeah well that sounds like fun yeah and how about you serge what have you been up to I've been prepping my next video essay, which is also a deep dive into uh, cryptozoology films. Ah, films right. about Loch Ness Monster. And it, it's part of my Saurian Cinema series. So it's not Bigfoot or Mothman uh, or the Yeti or the Chupacabra. It's specifically Mesozoic cryptid. So it's like Loch Ness Monster and Mokili Mabembe and a couple... There's like a random film about a giant pterosaur attacking New York and things like that. <laughs> and right, so, um, right. Wow. 
Are you going to uh, cover that that Loch Ness movie? What was it called? I am going to cover nine Loch Ness movies. You're going to have wow. to be more specific. Wow. There I did not nine know of them? that there were that many. No, there are actually like 12, but I couldn't find... There are like three German films about the Loch Ness Monster, and I couldn't find copies with uh, with English subtitles, so those will be excluded. Yeah, right. I, I mean, I think I'm thinking of the movie Loch Ness from 1996 with uh, Ted Danson in it. Yeah, that one will definitely oh, be covered. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's also I think there's a New Zealand film called The Water Horse. It's kind of Loch Nessy. Oh. It's sitting on the shelf behind me. Yeah, oh, filmed wow. in New Zealand anyway. Yeah, for the most part. Uh, so yeah, that's that's what I've been working on. Just watching every Loch Ness monster movie I can get my hands on. <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> I am impressed. Well, I'm just glad to hear that the uh, video essay conveyor belt is starting back up again because uh, you've been honoring the writer's strike for a while now. Yeah. Yeah, I put, uh, I'm almost done. I was almost done. Still am almost done with a a video about top 10 favorite superhero films, which uh, is a remake of the very first video essay I made, which I put on hold because of the writer's strike. There's a fine line between film historian and film promotion. Hmm. And it sort of felt like, um, like a top 10 favorite superhero films. That's, that's, I feel like that's pretty close to promoting. So just Mm, out of an overabundance of caution. I just tabled that one and then switched over to the cryptozoology one, which is not so much active promotion. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no. But yeah, the writer strike is ending, and and uh, there are rumors that the the acting strike is uh, is going to be winding down soon. So right, it'll be full steam ahead soon enough. Hopefully, oh, that's brilliant. Can't wait. Yes. Well, people have been writing to us, Dan. Ah, oh, yes. Yes. We heard from Dustin, one of our regular listeners, on Solomon Kane, and he said, I've been a fan of Solomon Kane since first discovering the character as a backup feature in the old Savage Sword of Conan magazines from Marvel. Right. The main problem I had with the Solomon Kane film was that it had nothing to do with the actual Solomon Kane lore. Ah. It was a generic dark fantasy with Solomon Kane copy-pasted into it, and an origin story that has details not even hinted at anywhere in Robert E. Howard's stories. I've come around on it a little over the years, as it is a decently entertaining sword and sorcery film, but as an adaptation of the character, I couldn't help but feel let down. The only thing mm. that felt remotely like Solomon Kane was the bit with the ghouls in the church cellar, which was your favourite bit. Ah, yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the director did mention that this was kind of an origin story that didn't have an origin story, you know. So... It's, it's yeah. it was kind of leading into the Solomon Kane journey that was about to unfold with two more films that never eventuated. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, well, Dustin says that they would have been better off uh, adapting Red Shadows, and says the first few pages in that story tell you all you need to know about the man called Solomon Kane, and they didn't need to invent a Devil's Reaper to do it. So mm, okay, okay. Yeah. And I think we also heard from Serge of Cold Crash Pictures. Oh, did we? What did you say, Serge? Uh, well, I said, <clears throat> I said, Solomon Kane is the perfect subject for movie Oubliette. It's a well-made film whose only sin is having been released three years late in an oversaturated market. I mean, the story may not be breaking any new ground, but it doesn't deserve to be forgotten. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It was a well-made film. We thought. It yeah. was, yeah. Mm. I liked it more than most of the films 
I watch for your podcast. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you've been having a rough ride so far this year. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that will improve now. Uh, Serge, would you, as our honoured guest, like to go into the oubliette? You're one of the few that stunned the safety training to do so. <laughs> yes, thank you. I'd be honoured. Okay, I'm going down. Okay, okay. Oh, wow. It looks like the entrance is blocked by these two giant stones. Hang on. Let me move them out of that. Oh, hold on. They just moved on their own. Oh, that was easy. Huh? All right. All right, let me go down these steps. Wow, there's like this big open it's some kind of church i think with all these Ooh. statues that are pointing down at what's this covered in dust hold on it's two movies are we doing two films this week <laughs> that's a bit much all right Ooh, I am perfection. okay i have two films with me today uh-huh oh wow what are they first up we have exorcist the beginning mm -hmm. from 2004 <laughs> Mm -hmm. Directed by Rennie Harlan, written by William Wisher and Caleb Carr, and starring Stellan Skarsgård, Isabella Skorupko, James Darcy, Remy Sweeney, and Julian Wadham. Mm -hmm. And the second film is called Dominion, prequel to The Exorcist, from 2005. And this one's directed by Paul Schrader. Story credits to Caleb Carr and William Wisher. But then the screenplay credit is by Alexei Hawley, mm -hmm. and it's also starring Stellan Skarsgård and Julian <laughs> Wadham. But then there are new cast members, Clara Beller, Gabriel Mann, and Billy Crawford. Oh. <laughs> and uh, what's the synopsis of these movies? <laughs> so even though they have different directors, slightly different writers, and, and almost completely different casts, I can give you a plot summary that covers both of them. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> okay. After suffering a traumatic encounter with the Nazis in the waning days of World War II, as opposed to all the non-traumatic encounters with Nazis in the waning days of World War II, <laughs> former priest-turned-archaeologist Lancaster Marin agrees to excavate a mysterious ancient church in East Africa, where no Christian church of that age should be. As the excavation progresses, a series of supernatural occurrences, not to mention rising tensions between the indigenous Turkana people and the occupying British forces, threatens to turn the site into a powder keg of both physical and supernatural violence. Can one lapsed priest stave off genocide and reclaim his faith in the midst of all this demonic slash British aggression? <laughs> Find out in both Exorcist the Beginning and Dominion prequel to The Exorcist. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Woo. Can't wait. Mm And we're back to talk about not one, but two attempts to make a prequel to The Exorcist, which celebrates its 50th anniversary this year and also has a new sequel or rebootquel or whatever the hell we call it in <laughs> theatres right now, Exorcist Believer. So, yeah, this is fun because this is, I think, one of the weirdest situations in cinema history. Yeah. So, I mean, how did they have the money, though, as well? Like, how did they film an entire movie and go, hmm, uh, let's just make it again. Yeah. Let's just reshoot 90% of the movie again. Like, what? They just have, like, spare cash. It's like a box of cash just, like, in the corner. I was like, I guess we should just use this. It's very peculiar. So 
The film originally was set up with John Frankenheimer and he got sick. So they went to Paul Schrader, who is very famous as a screenwriter for things like Taxi Driver and so on, but also as a director, most recently First Reformed, interestingly enough, which is also about a man struggling with his faith. But he tends to focus on lonely men going through existential crises of one kind or another. So it's a great fit. Mm, right. And he delivered what he believed was a faithful rendition of the William Wisher and Caleb Carr script. And the studio, Morgan Creek, just hated it because it wasn't scary. It was a philosophical film with supernatural elements. So they went through this whole period where they were arguing and saying, do some reshoots and goose it up a little bit, you know, add in some more gore and scary scenes. And eventually Schrader said, no, I'm not going to do that. I've given you the film that you gave me. I don't know what you want me to do. So they fired him. (laughs) They're already 30 million in the hole at this point. And rather than reshoot bits, they thought, we'll just start again Mm. with Rennie Harlin, the director of Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Dream Master and Die Hard 2. For a long time, in my head, he was just the sort of hacky director that you get to do sequels. (laughs) And um, he rewrote the script with a friend of his, I believe, and they assembled a pretty similar cast. I've read people summarising this situation, saying that it's a completely different cast apart from Stellan Skarsgård, but that's not true. Interestingly, people are ignoring the fact that all of the Takana people yes. are the same yeah. cast members. Mm, yeah, yeah. So largely the cast is the same apart from Father Francis and the female lead, who in one film is Rachel and in the other is Sarah. Yeah. Why did they recast? I think it might have just been down to availability maybe in some cases, but also in the case of Isabella Skorupko, whereas Clara Bella was cast on the basis that she wasn't a blonde starlet but rather was an actor that looked as though she came from the movies of the 40s, Mm. which is what Schrader was looking for. Rennie Harlan just wanted somebody who was sexy. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't look like she's a a Holocaust survivor at all. No. (laughs) Serge, had you seen these movies before? Like, is this a completely new experience for you? I was blind to both of them going in, yeah. I had not watched either. Wow. In part because... Historically, I don't enjoy exorcism films very much. Oh, um, okay. I have seen the original Exorcist, yeah, uh, which I like a lot. Everything else that I've seen that are exorcism films are all like random caught them on Showtime once. Like uh, I've seen The Right uh-huh. with uh, Anthony Hopkins. I've seen The Conjuring. That was a possession movie, right? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I think, yeah, in part, yeah, yeah. And I, I recently watched The Pope's Exorcist, actually in part in preparation for this podcast. I was like, I should watch more exorcism films. So that was one that I watched. Oh, yeah. So anyway, the moral is I don't really like any of them except the original Exorcist. Yeah. And so I had stayed away from all of the sequels, especially these two, because they have horrible reputations. <laughs> yeah. Going in, I was like, is this going to be just like which one gets one star and which one gets one and a half stars? Or... <laughs> kind of. But yeah, I would not have watched them if they were not part of this episode, probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, exorcism yeah. movies, they tend to be basically the same movie. Mm. It's a girl getting possessed. Always a girl. Yeah, yeah, it, it's always the same setup. So it's, it's more interesting when a non, you know, not a girl. So, I mean, these movies 
try to do that, not do the same girl again being possessed, uh, although one of them does kind of just descend into cliches uh, towards the end. So I feel like these movies are trying to do something a little bit different. The location is quite interesting uh, in, in Africa. Mm. The sort of archaeological dig does feel very familiar to like Indiana Jones, though. I felt like, especially the Rennie Harlan movie, it's like they've just transplanted Indiana Jones into an exorcist movie. I know, I was giggling, because in the Schrader version, Merrin is already in East Africa, yeah. and he's the one that discovers the church, and then all of a sudden the British and the Catholic Church pile in. Whereas in Harlan's version, he's this bitter, lonely, yeah. alcoholic man in a bar with a fedora on, being yeah. approached by somebody who's basically Belloc. Yeah. He even looks like Belloc. Yes, mm. he does. So I was chuckling and writing Indiana Anna Merrin in my <laughs> <notebook>. <laughs> Yeah, the differences are definitely, not to show my hand right at the beginning, but I think the differences are more interesting than either film on their own. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they are in different interpretations of basically the same storyline and the same characters, mm. just presented in different ways. So I, I kind of see it as the Schrader version is more of a fleshed out story with characters and, and sort of the scenario between the, the British army and the the local tribes people everything kind of makes more sense plot wise yeah. whereas the Rennie Harlan version things just happen and you don't know why <laughs> yeah I get they were trying to be more fast-paced but things don't make a lot of sense characters don't make a lot of sense and and the twist ending was just like where did what where did that come from oh yeah 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 so spoiler alert for all two of you who are listening to this episode and also care about spoilers <laughs> schrader's version the possessed person is this local kid who is he's disabled he's got like an arm that doesn't work and a leg that doesn't work and he's on a cane and they seem to imply some sort of developmental issues. Mm. And as he's like being possessed, his arms begin to become normal and he doesn't need a crutch anymore. Mm. By the time he's fully possessed, they kind of turn him into this androgynous, angelic, perfect being mm. with red eyes and a very unconvincing bald cap. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. so the idea is that's the possessed person, the victim, so to speak, mm. in Schrader's version, which was filmed first and the studio didn't like that and so the change that they made to the harlan version is make the girl the possessed one yeah and so they have this really shoehorn twist where he thinks it's a little local boy who's being possessed to the point where at one point they try to exercise the little boy mm. uh, and everybody involved gets like bone snapped <laughs> and the final confrontation the big twist is wait a second no it's the nurse it's the one human female in the film <laughs> yeah that she is actually the possessed demon and i find it interesting that the studio is like make it a girl yeah, yeah they just wanted to see the linda blair makeup again yeah and it doesn't make any sense when you track it back when you watch the film a second time which yeah. unfortunately we all did <laughs> yeah it doesn't make the blindest bit of sense yeah, yeah I, I mean the boy like what was going on with the boy though if he wasn't possessed how was he able to not get attacked by the hyenas how was he able to move his bed across the room and make every glass object smash on the floor like like, how was he able to break bones of the tribespeople when they were doing the exorcism? Like, how does that 
worked? Was Sarah just secretly just standing in the corner doing these things? Supposedly, Harlan says yes. It's her being restrained, not wanting the boy to be going through these experiences and unleashing her supernatural powers without her knowledge. Right. But why on earth would Satan do that? Yeah. It does not make sense and it doesn't track all the way back to the hyena attack because she wasn't even there. Mm -mm. So it's nonsense. Exactly. (laughs) It's one of my issues with exorcism films in general is that the ones that try to build in a twist where the characters are shocked and horrified by some new piece of information at the end of the film, Satan has no reason to fool the characters with this twist. Satan has a reason to fool the audience with this twist. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. yeah. And and a twist where it doesn't make any sense and you don't see coming because you would never ever suspect that character of being possessed. Right. It's not a twist then. (laughs) Also, it doesn't change anything. No, No, it doesn't. Thematically, it does nothing. Yeah. And in terms of the effect that it has, the only difference is that you get to have a Linda Blair lookalike crawling up cave walls. Yeah. Yeah. Great. I bet there was a studio (laughs) note that was like, we need the exorcism scenes to be one notch sexier. Mm. They were like, we don't want this hairless androgenine. <laughs> we don't want to be staring at that. We want a demon who will literally push her cleavage into Marin's face. Yeah. <laughs> and the studio decided that was an improvement. <laughs> yeah, the, interestingly, I actually find the Billy Crawford version peculiarly sexy, but <laughs> in a very, very camp way. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. It's got quite a gay energy, the Schrader movie, because this local boy turns into a Filipino pop star, as far as I can tell from my research, <laughs> who's sort of glittery and smooth and perfect and not wearing an awful lot and sort of lounges around in front of the Pazuzu statue like clear. Patra on a chaise long. Mm. It's all a bit sexy. Yeah, he's kind of glistening. <laughs> yeah. and he's, he doesn't have a lot on. He is perfection in his words. He is, uh, yeah. So, you know, that's a lot of uh, innuendo there. There is, yeah. And, yeah. and Schrader said they deliberately in the script, they were going for the inverse of what they did in the first movie to try and stay away from it as much as possible. So they changed the gender and they have the person, instead of the outward expression of their satanic possession being physical scarring and imperfections and getting more diseased and worse, mm. he would instead go the other direction and get better, which in Schrader's view... Did not work. Hmm. He knew it wouldn't work, but he directed the script he was given and delivered it. Oh, right. That wasn't his decision. No, it was in the script and he filmed the script and it doesn't work. Yeah, it does. Like, I can see how on paper you might think, oh, well, this is at least different from the first Exorcist, so let's roll with it. But I don't know. I kept thinking the whole movie as Satan was curing this child of his ailments, I was like... What if we just let him stay possessed? I mean, the kid doesn't seem to mind. (laughs) Yeah. Satan just cure everyone of the ailments. I mean, yeah, yeah, hail Satan. (laughs) I did find 
the ending of the trailer version. Well, actually, the whole movie for me was barely an Exorcist movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, and I kind of do agree with the studios. Like, if you take the sort of last bit out, it feels not even like a horror. It feels like kind of a weird thriller drama. And there's much more focus on the characters and the differences between the British Army and the, the local people. That's kind of interesting. Then you slap the exorcist on it and it kind of doesn't work so i found all the exorcist aspects of the movie kind of make it worse and they could have called it a different movie and taken the exorcist stuff out and it would have been a movie that you could watch Mm. it is a well-made film like it feels deliberate and it feels well thought out the production value is pretty good like everything looks real like the locations look real oh i mean cgi (laughs) yeah (laughs) right when i said that i was like uh Mm. yeah (laughs) yeah but but for the most part it's quite a good looking film Mm. whereas the harlan version i feel like everything's fake oh yeah every scene there's just like cgi backgrounds and nothing looks lived in never feels like we're in Africa at all. Mm-mm. No. So the original, they had five weeks shooting in Morocco and five weeks in Chinachita, studios in Italy. And in the quick, let's do another version with Rennie Harlan at the helm was entirely in Chinachita and a gravel pit just outside Rome. <laughs> Wow. Okay. So hence the digital puke backgrounds and the general airlessness of the whole production. Both of them have the same cinematographer, Vittorio Storaro, who is no slouch. I mean, he's won the Oscar a number of times for things like The Last Emperor. Wow. And Apocalypse Now. So yeah, he's no slouch. Yeah. So yeah, the films look beautiful. I think Schrader's more so than Harlan's. Oh, definitely. There's not CGI just plastered everywhere. I was surprised how different they wound up looking. Mm. Like, I remember going into this experience, having not seen a single frame from either of them, I was like, am I even going to be able to recall which scenes came from which movies? But that was easier than I thought, because um, they're shot very different. Like, the directions for the cinematographer seem very different to me. The Harlan version, there's much higher contrast. Yes. The darks are a lot darker. Mm-hmm. And the like the close-ups are closer. And it's not like I went through and counted them, but I was noticing more close-ups. Like, people would get inserts, whereas the Schrader version was more... The camera was a bit more... Felt a bit more pulled back. Mm. There was not as much contrast, and there seemed to be fewer close-ups, fewer... I don't know. It felt like the camera was kind of hanging back a little bit. Mm. Um, and, and not to the detriment of either film. I'm just, I was just surprised that they were so different. Yeah. Um, just in terms of their look. Yeah, I was comparing one of the office scene where he's, uh, where Mirren's talking to the major, or um, what's his name? Granville. Yeah, yeah mm. it looks very similar. Mm. The lighting's almost exactly the same. But yeah, the color grade is very different. Like the straighter version feels a lot flatter. Yeah. Like it doesn't seem as high contrast. And showing the backgrounds and, and the locations a lot more as well. Whereas I guess Harlan's version was trying to make it darker, more mysterious. So they just put all these weird like CGI backgrounds to kind of make it more scary, I guess. You know, it could also be that Schrader's version just wasn't color corrected in post at all. That's true. Yeah, they did the best they could themselves. They weren't given enough money to get Vittorio Storaro back. They were only given a budget of $35,000 
to finish post-production on their movie. Wow. That's like the catering budget. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they're trying to edit color time, do special effects, and also figure out what to do with the score, which ended up being a bit of a hodgepodge, including contributions from Schrader's friend, Angelo Badalamonte, the late Angelo Badalamonte, who supplied about 15 minutes of music free of charge. All oh, right. Mm. Really? Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. Because he's, yeah, it's the Twin Peaks guy. Mm, yeah, David Lynch collaborator. So, again, yeah. no slouch. I mean, for either film, I didn't find the music hugely memorable. I remember nothing. <laughs> I mean, the Harlan version's very cheesy. I mean, the whole movie is just complete cheese um, in terms of, like, horror cliches. There's, like, every cliche. We'll cover it in the movies. <laughs> but, yeah, every single cliche under the sun, especially... Jump scares galore. Oh, God. Like every, yeah. like 10 seconds is a loud sound. Yeah. And everything is dialed up to 11. So it's really fun watching both scenes side by side. Yeah. So just something simple like when they're first exhuming this uh, buried church from the sands of Takana, there's a Takana man who has a seizure because of the evil that's emanating mm. from it. Mm. In Schrader's version, it just happens to him while he's in a shot that has already been established in the Rennie Harlan version, it's a jump scare and he froths at the mouth. <laughs> yeah, I know. Every scene. Everything. It's like Merrin's backstory from World War II. In Schrader's version, you get it as a prologue, a continuous scene. Mm. It's very sad, very sober. It's shot like a, a classical Hollywood movie. It's about a terrible choice he has to make. You know the repercussions of it will live with him. It informs his character arc for the rest of the movie. Mm. And in Harlin's version, it's drip-fed to you throughout the movie as these flashbacks with these showy transitions that blow out the screen and yeah. the whole scene has been reshot and it's all fast cuts and stunts with villagers being thrown through windows. Mm. You know, yeah. all of it is just cranked up to 11 and it's a bit crass. <laughs> yeah, it, it feels very familiar. Like, it feels like here's a Hollywood version of the movie and then Schrader's is like, this is a more sort of fleshed out drama version of the movie. Mm. In Harlan's version in particular, you know, one of the first things he did, I say he did, it was probably a, a big studio note, was was add more instances of violence and gore right up front. Yes. And I watched the Harlan version second. Mm -hmm. So I had already seen Schrader, which is much more pulled back and reserved the gore doesn't really start coming in until like towards the, like the last third of the film mm. whereas harlan he's taken out easy targets from the word go like he's got like a decapitated child's head in like the first 20 minutes yeah. just like as like a really cheap stupid jump scare within a dream sequence yes <laughs> and it just wound up being you said the word crass, mm. and then these particular thoughts came flooding back into my head. I remember thinking, all right, so this is a, it's a movie made with American crew and, and, and European crew, and they've set it in this very particular historic period where Africa was being victimized, and Harlan's film just opens with, like, all of these indigenous black people as cannon fodder just being torn to pieces. And there is a little bit of lip service played toward the fact that imperialism was a factor here, but then they make East Africa the seat of evil. 
Yes. Where Lucifer landed on Earth after being expelled from heaven. <laughs> and it just kept adding up. It just kept going. And I was like, this is crass. <laughs> mm. yeah. It is. Whereas in the Schrader version of the movie, I think the British Empire is compared with the Catholic Church. Yeah. Both yeah, of them that's... are demonstrated as examples of human evil. You know, in terms of Harlan's version, I didn't notice any comparisons between the British Empire and the Catholic Church, but I did notice, just in a couple of shots, comparisons between the British Empire and the Nazis. Yes. Mm. Like, in particular, when the Nazi shoots the little girl, and then when the British commanding officer shoots someone, it's the same framing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's very quick. Blink and you'll miss it. But it felt just close enough for me to think that it was on purpose, which I thought was a rare moment of interesting thematic content from the Harlan film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I found the movies are quite different in terms of also how they've presented the characters. Mm. So Mirren in the Schrader version is much more sympathetic to others. He seems much more caring. He's already established, so he knows the locals. He's known, like he cares for the villagers. Whereas in the Harlan version, he's kind of brought in. He doesn't know anyone and he doesn't seem to react to anything. Like, mm. people fall over in seizures, and he's just like, oh. He's a noble gas. Yeah, yeah. Or, or like when uh, Joseph, the little boy, is having the, his weird exorcist seizure thing in the hospital and everything's vibrating. He doesn't do anything there as well. Like, he just doesn't seem to care in the Harlan version. No, he's depicted much more of a, an angry drunk who's given up on everything. I think... The Belloc character says to him, you're simply a man who's lost faith in everything but himself, <laughs> which is not who he is in the Schrader version. Yeah. In fact, that's the one thing he has lost faith in, in the Schrader version. Not so much the church, but just his own judgment. Mm. Yeah, he's uh, he hasn't even left the church in the Schrader version. He's merely on sabbatical, Yeah, which is why in the Schrader version, he's got his vestments like in storage with him. Mm. So when it comes time to exercise the demon at the end of the film, he runs back to his tent or whatever, or his quarters, and he dons his vestments again, like Iron Man suiting up for battle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and then the final exorcism, he's, uh, he's in priest vestments. Whereas in the Harlan version, having left the church, he has no vestments to change into. Mm. And so he performs the exorcism in his archaeological outfit. Yeah. <laughs> I found it strange in the Schrader version when he's in the church and he's confronting Cheche as the demon, Cheche lets him go mm. to put his gown on and his all his uh, uh, crosses and everything. And then comes back. Like, what, what was the point of that? Yeah, I thought it was a little clumsy. Yeah. <laughs> like, in terms of screenwriting, it's like he's going to halt the exorcism for a second while he does a costume change. <laughs> yeah, yeah, back. exactly. Like, what? Uh, <laughs> yeah. A lot of the other characters are quite different as well. Like, the Father Francis character in the Schrader version is much more mm. nuanced. And he's the newcomer that comes to the village and it feels like a character whereas his character in the Harlem version I don't know he's not much of a character no he yeah. kind of vanishes from the Harlan movie for a huge chunk of act two yeah and I don't think James Darcy quite nails it as much or at least he hasn't got as much to work with whereas Gabriel Mann's version of Father Francis is an idealist 
He's very enthusiastic about his mission. Mm. He's filled with a genuine joy and love of sharing his religion with the children of the site that they're working at. Mm. And crushed when they some of them are killed in a mass spearing. Mm. And his deep concern as well that Merrin's lack of faith means that he won't even administer the last rites for him when it means so much to him when he's at death's door Mm. there's a genuine emotional arc going on there he serves a purpose and also another little tick for the uh why is this movie so queer box (laughs) there's the scene of him as um saint sebastian which is very much imagery that's been adopted by the lgbtq community Mm. but father francis is a much bigger character than he is in the harlan one in the harlan one he just I don't know, shouts at Merrin a bit and then dies, really. There's not much to it. Yeah, yeah he, in the Harland version, Father Francis is there to reveal that the Catholic Church knew that something was up with this site. Yeah. And it's supposed to be this big twist. Another twist. Yeah, which changes nothing. <laughs> it's like, we knew by this point that the site was weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's the stupidest thing, that thing with the graveyard. Because he, yeah. in the Harlan one, he passes this graveyard with all of these crosses on. And the first thing he says is, well, what's this? And they say, well, it is the victims of a plague that killed everyone. And Merrin says nothing. Yeah. Then later he's, hang on a minute. If everybody died, who buried them? Which is a weird thing <laughs> to ask the people that came next. What what kind of question is that? Yeah. The question really is, what are all these Christian crosses doing in the middle of this African village? Yeah. But he never thinks about that. And then, no. then he digs them up and says, there's nobody in there. And it turns out that it's because the Catholic Church has buried lots of empty caskets for no reason yeah. to try and scare people away. I don't know. It made no sense whatsoever. And Merrin's decoding of it took up a lot of time and went nowhere and made him look stupid, frankly. Mm. Some other characters I felt were different as well. Uh, Major Granville Mm. was much more fleshed out in the Schrader version. Mm. So he's the sort of the head of the army. And you see his descent into madness. Like, uh, it makes sense. It takes time. Yeah. You see him losing his mind, really. And the suicide scene makes sense. Yeah. In the Harlem version, what <laughs> the hell? I don't <laughs> like, know. You see, the character has like, I don't know, 10 minutes of screen time, and then suddenly he's hallucinating butterflies fluttering around and shoots himself. You're like, what? <laughs> Where did that come from? He's just another body for the kill count in Harlan's version. Yeah, yeah he is. In the Schrader version... Yeah, he's slowly worn down by the growing tension with the local people, but also really upset because two of his men get brutally murdered in a way that he finds horrifying and loses faith in humanity and kills himself, probably because of the influence of the evil as well. Mm. And it's a fairly shocking scene because it seems to escalate from nowhere and is really sad and tragic. Mm. And then the Harlan version, again, yeah, he's not in it much. And he seems to lose it, shoot one of the Takana people in the face yeah. because some really awful British character that I don't think he's even met gets killed and strung up in the church. Yeah. yeah. The what's his name? Jeffries. Jeffries. Oh, Jeffries with the the pussy face. The pussy faced guy that's just revolting <laughs> and sexist and oh. racist and awful, creepy towards the doctor. Mm. And for some reason that just throws Granville over the edge. I don't know why. It's really weird. Yeah. <laughs> Now it's time for Random Trivia! So, Dan, 
What arcane piece of trivia did you discover in a sunken church today? Uh, so, Conrad, I think you did mention it briefly, but uh, the actor who plays Cheche is is renowned Filipino singer Billy Crawford. Uh, a lot more famous than I knew. He um, He's considered one of the best-selling Filipino artists of the 21st century, having sold an estimated 2 million records worldwide. Uh, in 2001, wow. he's, his single Tracken peaked at number five for five weeks in France and was certified platinum. Uh, he started his career in the entertainment business uh, incredibly young, becoming one of Michael Jackson's backup dancers at the MTV Video Music Awards in 1995, aged 13. So, yeah, quite famous in uh, the Philippines and, and Europe, apparently. Yeah, particularly France, which was a problem while they were filming in Morocco, from what Paul Schrader said, because Morocco historically is part of the French Empire, so there's a lot of French speakers there and a bit of cultural crossover, so he kept getting recognised, although Ah. goodness knows how, considering the makeup he was wearing for large portions of the movie. yeah. Which made him look like Cro-Magnon man for some reason. Yeah, he's not, he doesn't look like, he's quite an attractive guy. Yeah, he's a very handsome man, but not in this movie at any point, actually. No. (laughs) Poor guy. No. (laughs) All right, that's our trivia. What did you think about Trader's version in terms of horror? Is it a horror movie? It's not, is it? But I don't think that's a bad thing. I think what happens all the time with these prequels and sequels is that they slap the exorcist word on the poster and then suddenly have a crisis of confidence because there isn't an exorcism in it and it isn't a horror movie. Mm -hmm. Because actually what the writers have done is do what you need to do, which is to take it somewhere else. Mm. So William Peter Blatty did The Exorcist 3, which was like a serial killer thriller police procedural with supernatural elements, which was really interesting. Mm. But it had the word exorcist on it, so they forced him to put an exorcism in at the last minute, Mm. and it doesn't make any sense. And with this one, again, if you'd called it Dominion, and it had been a story of Merrin's crisis of faith and his first brush with Pazuzu in East Africa, I think it would have been all right. But they spotted the word exorcist on the poster and thought, well, we better goose this up a bit and put loads of gore in. Let's get Rennie Harlan on the phone. Yeah. I think it's the weight of the brand that causes the problems. Yeah. Yeah. I think the brand does still need to be inserted into the film, though, because for me, the Schrader version it doesn't work as a horror movie and if you're gonna put exorcist in the title you kind of have to make it a horror movie at least because it felt i mean it is very slow it is very fleshed out plot and character wise horror wise it's pretty boring and the gore effects are pretty tame yeah but neither one's scary. Yeah, the Schrader version, uh, I mean, if we're going to invent genre labels, it's not a horror. It's not even like a psychological horror. It's a philosophical horror, yeah. if you will. Yeah. One of the few positive reviews I read of it. In fact, it wasn't even a positive review, but it, it was like, say what you will about this film. Schrader is taking evil seriously. Mm-hmm. And Harlan's version is not taking evil seriously. Yeah. To Harlan, you know, evil is just jump scares. Yeah. Whereas Schrader is trying to say maybe something about 
you know what? I'm not even sure exactly what he's trying to say about it, but you can tell he's trying to say something. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, the story of Merrin is more complete in the Schrader version. Mm. You can see the crisis in faith and the crisis in his own choices during World War II and what it says about him as a person, his ability to be a force for good in the world. And he learns through the film, not so much he reclaims his faith, but just that he um, he learns that it's through resilience that you achieve true heroism in some way and not the ridiculous version of it that Pazuzu tempts him with because he mm. he gets to live this alternative version of his flashback where he does the Hollywood thing and starts shooting people yeah. and it just ends up worse. Yeah. So it's a tale about the, the true nature of heroism and faith. So that actually works for me, whereas the Harlan one... Fuck only knows what that's about. It doesn't make any yeah. sense at all. It's just jump scares. It's yeah. just look at these genre conventions that we dusted off for you. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I think this might be an unpopular opinion, but I feel like the Harlem Vision works more as a horror movie. It is oh, yeah. it is a horror I mean, it is a cliche horror movie. Yeah. It covers everything you expect in a horror movie, but it's still a horror movie. So if you came from watching all the other Exorcist movies, I don't know. I feel like the Harlan film is more like it, it ticks the boxes kind of thing. Whereas Dominion is a very different film. It's not an Exorcist film. Yeah, the Harlan version I think is bending over backwards to satisfy the genre conventions of horror. A hundred percent. And that's yes. um, that's kind of what makes it boring and crass. Is that it's leaning so heavily on just like things you've seen in other horror films, but mm. that does make it a conventional horror film. Yeah. In a way that Schrader's is not. Yeah. yeah. I kind of found Schrader's film a bit boring. I mean, it's very slow paced. And I guess with the expectation of this is an exorcist movie, let's see some exorcisms and horror, it doesn't really deliver on that, on that respect. Or at least let's see something that gives us a sense of dread. Yeah. Mm. Exorcist 3 is a different movie from The Exorcist, but it still creeps me mm. the fuck out. I think that's a really creepy movie. It is. Whereas Dominion is not a creepy movie. It's not. No. Dominion does make sense, yeah. story and character-wise, whereas, yeah, the Harlem version, the, the beginning... Doesn't make any. There are lots of things that don't make any sense. Like no. at one point, Sarah searches through the village and and she finds out she's bleeding, mm. and that's never addressed ever again. Like why? What? It's why just was a she genre bleeding? convention. Yeah. Oh, it's supposed to be a clue that it's her that's being possessed, but then she sort of brushes it off as, "Hey, this is a bit weird because what happened to me in the concentration camps means that yeah, she alludes to, a, I guess, a hysterectomy." Yeah, oh, I think that's so. Right. Yeah, yes. but. I mean, yes. she's treating it as though it's, you know, a bit of a bad time of the month. But, I mean, she's hemorrhaging, for goodness sake. Yeah. Be more concerned about it, I know. It, really. It's a, a, lot of, a lot of blood. It's like that twist that you find out that... Because it has a, yet another cliche. It has the thing of Merrin's predecessor went crazy and is now in a padded room with drawings uh, all over the wall and then kills himself after uh, giving yeah, one yeah, clue. Yeah. And then there's this twist that he is Sarah's husband, or was. Yeah. And that means nothing either. And also, yeah. on second viewing, makes no sense because he tells her the news and she barely reacts to it. It's just like... <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. She's just not bothered. Mm. It's her husband. She's not bothered at all. Uh, yeah. Oh, she's not. <laughs> yeah, he, he comes back and, and she says, oh, what happened? And he, he says, oh, he... 
he's dead. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, okay. Yeah, the Harlan version shoehorns in three twists that mean nothing, that do nothing, that change nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in the Harlan version as well, the, the idol, the sort of little... Uh, Pazuzu, yeah. Pazuzu head thing. What was the point in that? It's a callback. That's another thing that the Harlan version does, as well as giving you all the horror staples that will satisfy a horror audience. It's also doing more callbacks to The Exorcist. So the Pazuzu head is from the original movie, and the Pazuzu statue that's in the sunken church Mm. is the exact same Pazuzu statue that was in the original, whereas the one that's in the Schrader version is a representation of Pazuzu as seen through a different culture, which makes much more sense. Mm. But Mm. who cares about sense? Let's just do the callbacks. So they're just playing the hits. It's set up as a MacGuffin, isn't it? Because the the Belloc character says at the beginning... You've got to find this powerful thing. It's only powerful because the audience will recognise it. Yeah. It doesn't have any power. It never did in the original, anyway. But I thought it was going to have more importance because he was tasked with finding it. Yeah. And he does find it embedded in the wall of Sarah's room, which is just covered in blood now. Uh, and he takes it and then he loses it. Yeah. And then nothing happens. Like, what What? What was the point? Yeah, I forgot that he found it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if there's one more difference between the films that I, I definitely want to mention mm. is in the endings, the way that they end. We're talking about after the exorcism. Mm -hmm. In Schrader's version, which was conceived first and filmed first, he emerges from the church having exorcised this little kid. And there's an implied, like, now that the evil is gone, the tensions between the Turkana and the British sort of subsides. And the status quo is kind of back to normal, except like the British, I guess, are like pulling back their forces a little bit. And it's implied that everybody's kind of happy and they're going to go their separate ways and that's the end of the film and then the harlan version which is what the studio opted to change they did the opposite of what studios normally do which is mandate a happy ending they saw that happy ending and they were like absolutely not yeah (laughs) uh and when when father Marin emerges from the church in the harlan version first of all the possessed victim doesn't survive the exorcism yeah. in Harlan's version. She just no, she, she just blood comes gushing out of the back of her head and she's dead. <laughs> and when Father Marin emerges from the church, the British and the Turkana have massacred each other. And he's sort of him and the little kid are like the only two survivors. Mm. And then he like goes back to Vatican City and becomes a priest. Yeah, another callback. Neither ending is incredibly interesting on its own. But what they opted to change, I find fascinating that uh, the studio was like, no, it has to end with a massacre. Yeah. And it feels like because Rennie Harlan has that prologue where like in the dim distant past, some priest Mm. in sandals wandering through an ancient battlefield with everybody dead. Mm. And then the same thing happens at the end of this movie. Everybody's dead. And I think the theme of Rennie Harlan's version is war is bad. Yeah, it's kind of vague. And one last harp, (laughs) exorcism films, when they purport to be based on a true story or they go out of their way to ground themselves in a specific historical context like this one does, Mm. setting itself in East Africa in the late 40s, we are a few years away from the Mau Mau Rebellion, which is when Kenya first had its most organized attempt at throwing off British rule. And the British were, you know, it's like horrific acts of violence were committed in order to suppress the Kenyan uh, rebellion. This is a real historical context 
where imperialism was doing awful things and people were reacting to it violently. And Hollywood swoops in and they're like, we're going to use this very specific historical context to tell a story about how like, isn't the devil scary? (laughs) (laughs) And I see it in other exorcism films too, like perhaps most notably the exorcism of Emily Rose, which was a real, like someone was actually killed through malnourishment, through neglect, Mm. tying her to a bed for a year. This 19 year old girl dies and then Hollywood swoops in and they're like, maybe it was the devil. And I don't think this should be left uh, unstated. It wasn't the devil. It was malnutrition that killed her. Mm. (laughs) And I find it weird for Hollywood to be using historical contexts and historical examples of real world atrocities committed by people, real people, and just blaming the devil. Yeah. I can't quite remember what point I was going to make, but yeah, I didn't want that to go unsaid. No, yeah. I, I think you're right. I think at least the Schrader version has a more nuanced yes. discussion about the nature of good and evil. It does. Because there's that really mm. great conversation with Rachel and Merrin where she says it's so much easier to believe evil is random or an ogre, not a human condition that everyone is capable of. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a line in the Harlan version where um, after Jeffries has been killed, Someone says something to the effect of, it feels like a rebellion is coming along. And I heard that and I was like, I'm not sure if the writer knows that there actually was a rebellion about to happen (laughs) in Kenya, like three years after this movie takes place. I don't know if he was alluding to that or if he's just that ignorant. Yeah, that Mm. wouldn't surprise me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Movie Awards. Okay, it's that special time of the pod, the Moobly Awards, where we nominate our favourite World War II traumatised parts of the film in a number of glass-shattering, bed-moving, ceiling-crawling categories. (laughs) Best quote. So my favourite quote, against all odds, comes from the Harlan version. Wow. It's when when Jeffries and Father Marin meet for the first time. Jeffries goes, do you drink? And Marin goes, I shouldn't. But my will is weak. <laughs> yeah. And and I, I like that quote because it underscores this idea that Father Marin is not good at exorcisms. Right. And I figure if every exorcism film is looking for some kind of twist, I think it'd be I think it's interesting if uh, what if you're not good at it and you have to do it, <laughs> uh, which is um, about as interesting an angle as I could read this film. Yeah. Yeah. All of the dialogue in the Harlem movie is so pulpy, but particularly from Merrin. But they have the scene where <laughs> Father Francis, I think, is talking about a nunnery becoming possessed en masse and it being this, this terrible event. And uh, <laughs> Merrin replies, having orgies, including goats, doesn't make them possessed. Simply horny and inventive. <laughs> 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 Best hair or costume? Mine gotta be uh, Che Che's bald cap. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which, like, they they added some scarring to it. Yeah. I guess maybe with the thought of, like, okay, so people will be able to see that this is a bald cap, so we might as well add some scarring lines so that maybe they'll <laughs> think that the uh, the latex edge is just another scar. <laughs> mm. <laughs> Maybe. Yeah, it's a nice try. In my case, it was the the British soldier's uniform 
I don't know, it's just hard to take evil authority figures seriously when they're in shorts and their knobbly white knees uh, around. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it just cracked me up. <laughs> also, the V-neck jumpers in Africa didn't seem like <laughs> oh, a good idea yeah, to yeah. me. Yeah. Most naughty moment. The thing I wrote down was uh, this idea that European occupation of Africa is bad, but it's still going to take a benevolent white man to save them all. Yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) In at least one version of the film. Mm. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, there was a lot of this back then, even things like uh, The Ghost in the Darkness. uh, Yeah. Which was another, another one along those lines. Still a great white hero. Yeah, yeah. My, my my hesitance of writing that down as the most naughty's moment is that it's not contained to the 2000s. Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> it hasn't even ended, I don't think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for me, I just wrote down the same thing that you said when we were doing Solomon Kane, Dan, which is religious-themed movies, but particularly religious horror. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. just to pick out a few, Bless the Child with Kim Bassinger, <sighs> Constantine, the Exorcism of Emily Rose, which you mentioned, Serge, a remake of The Omen, mm-hmm. and of course Solomon Kane and Death Watch. So, yeah. Yeah. A lot of it going on in the noughties for some reason. Mm. A bit of a resurgence. Yeah, yeah. Favorite scene! So, I wind up prefacing every one of my selections. None of the scenes are great. <laughs> but, <laughs> again, against all odds, it's in the Harlan version. It was how. And it, it's not a scene, it's a shot, but the scene where uh, Major Granville kills uh, one of the Turkana tribesmen in anger, shoots him in the head point blank range. It's it's a very explicit callback to watching a Nazi execute somebody, which I thought was one of the few interesting thematic points that the film had to make. And I thought it was well done for what it was going for. Mm. Yeah. It was the one moment of thematic resonance in the entire movie. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, Dan? Talking about a good scene in the Harlan version, I felt like all the the church scenes for me kind of worked. I kind of liked the the dreaded mystery of, of going into this dark cave of a church and, and uncovering things. It felt, it did feel very Indiana Jones. And maybe that's why I liked it. But yeah. it, 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 it kind of had a sense of like, what are we going to discover? It did, yeah. Because he gets lowered in via the roof yeah. in the uh, Harlan version. Whereas in the Schrader version, they just wait until they've cleared the doors and walk in. <laughs> yes. Most cliche moment. Horror cliche. <clears throat> well, roll up the Harlan movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can I go first? Yeah. Please do. A woman is taking a shower and she hears spooky <laughs> noises and she goes to investigate wearing only a towel. Yeah. And of, and course. of course, the power goes out as well. This, this right. N- electricity doesn't exist in those types of scenes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the Harlem movie really does check all the boxes in terms of, of cliches. You've got, you've got yeah. all the animals you expect. You've got crows and flies and maggots and... Uh, Hyenas was was interesting. I like the the, the <laughs> addition of hyenas, although the CGI awful. Um, yeah. You've got upside down crosses, doors closing and opening by themselves, beds moving across, windows banging. You know all the things you expect from an exorcism yeah. movie. Yeah, 
You also have all the jump scares. You have jump scare birds, jump scare dead bodies falling in front of yeah. you, giggling child runs through the background of a shot. Mm. All of them. Best special effect. So I, I definitely didn't think best special effect. I thought favorite special effect, which is um, the final shot of the Harlan film is Father Marin walking away from a cafe and then they cut to a shot of him walking and you see it's Vatican City. Yeah. And he and he turns and he walks into the heart of I, I think it's St. Peter's Basilica. But so it's they didn't film it at Vatican City. Yeah, it's very they they filmed it in front of a it's the actor in front of a green screen with a plate that some second unit shot, probably without permission. And the composite <laughs> is just the worst thing I've I, oh. I've seen outside of Bryce 3D. So bad. It's, <laughs> he's just he's he's floating across the plaza. I, I vaguely recall like you can see the green on his face because ah, he's right. in front of a green screen and it's reflecting yeah. green light. I remember watching that and I was like, wait, wait, was this the version that didn't get any post production <laughs> funds? No, this is the finished one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My favorite special effect is the shot. It's from the Schrader version, and it's um, when Francis and the Doctor are trying to exercise Che Che, and there's just this really weird shot where oh, both yes. of them are blown away from the bed, and Rachel goes down sort of at normal speed, <laughs> yes. and then the camera swings around, <laughs> and Father Francis is flying through the air in slow motion like he's underwater, <laughs> and it's... It's sort of weird and beautiful, but I don't know what it's trying to achieve either thematically yeah. or tonally. It's just odd. Yeah. But it's confusing it. because you, you kind of have to have consistency here. Like both slow-mo, <laughs> so that makes sense. Not one normal and then one slow-mo. Because I thought it was literally levitating across the room. I thought the, the yeah. demon had, had was like suspending him in, in midair and, and flinging him across but no it's a slow-mo yeah favorite sound effect so there's a scene in uh, in harlan's version where a window gets blown open behind sarah and there is this stock whoosh noise that i have heard in Four thousand seven hundred eighty-six other films, <laughs> <laughs> and so it's not. Uh, again, most of my favorites from the Mooblies yeah. this, this time around are just uh, not the best, just my favorite. Mm. <laughs> uh, but I was like, I was like, ah, I know that whoosh noise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's stuck. Uh, my favorite sound is there is uh, tribal music, I believe, as they're preparing for war. And in amongst all of the complex drumming and uh, the slow intensity and the tempo, there is what sounds like a clown car honking noise. Oh, yeah. Just going. <laughs> and it's, yeah, really terrifying. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I did notice that as well. <laughs> Most funniest moment. I literally burst out laughing against my better judgment when in Harlan's version, when Major Granville shoots himself in the head. Yeah. <laughs> because what happens is he's hallucinating that all of these bugs that he has, all, all of these, they're moths and butterflies that he's got pinned mm. and they're all fluttering their wings and a, a moth crawls out of his mouth and you think he's going to freak out or it's going to fly away. But no, then it crawls back into his mouth and as if he's chasing it with a revolver, he sticks 
he sticks a gun <laughs> into his mouth and he and he and he kills himself. And yeah. I I burst out laughing, uh, which is in in, in stark contrast. <laughs> to Schrader's version where that scene was very like touching and sad. Yeah, yeah. Mm. But the Harlan version I was just is just a classic example of uh unintentional comedy for me. Mm, yeah. yeah. <laughs> for me it was the climax of the Harlan movie which has the demon playing chicken with Merrin in a tunnel, <laughs> running, flailing oh, yes. her arms around everywhere, looking yeah. utterly ridiculous until she hits his holy force field at full speed and presumably all of her organs and bones are liquefied and she falls over and I was just pissing myself. I thought it was ridiculous. Ah, yeah. So ridiculous. Yeah, and she, she seems to be running forever as well. How did she get so far away? <laughs> I know, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. Mm. And that's our movies. Hi, this is Jonathan McIntosh of Pop Culture Detective Agency, and you're listening to Movie Oubliette. Okay, it's time for our final verdicts. Should one or both the Exorcist prequels be set free from its buried church tomb to be adored by the worshipping masses? Or should it be compelled by the power of Christ and be cast back down (laughs) into the darkness of the Oubliette, never to be seen again? Uh, yeah, two movies. Serge, are they redeeming? So I'm going to say, uh, my synoptic thought is that neither of them are good. Mm-hmm. I think maybe the Harlan version, the highs are a little, the few highs are a little bit higher and the frequent lows are a lot lower. Mm. But ultimately we're talking about, they're fighting over one star versus one and a half stars as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> uh, so so yeah. if we were reviewing either film on its own, I would send them back to the Oubliette. But as a pair, I think they make for a fascinating study. Mm. Maybe not even artistically, but maybe just in terms of like Hollywood history, the studio notes, I think they make for like this opportunity is so rare. Like it's it's not just mm. a mere mm. studio cut versus director's cut. It's two completely different films with like two mostly different creative teams. Mm. And what I found myself doing as I started rewatching the films was um, I almost appreciated that they were both were bad because I was able <laughs> to evaluate them on things beyond mere quality. Mm, anyway, sure, sure. not that I'll ever watch them again, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I think the comparisons are interesting enough to warrant uh, people who are curious to take a look at them. So as a pair, I think they should be released from the Oubliette. Ah, ah. Wow. Oh, Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I can kind of see where you're coming from because it is, I think, a unique opportunity. Yeah. I don't think you've you've ever seen two major productions that are complete standalone things shot back to back on the same sets yeah. with some of the same cast based on the same script, two completely different directors, different visual approaches for a major franchise, it's kind of like being able to see Gareth Edwards' original version of Rogue One, which we will never get to see. Yeah. So it's unique, it's fascinating. But, and although I think you can probably tell from my comments throughout the discussion, I think the Schrader version is an interesting character study and a whole sensible movie. But they're both bad. Yeah. <laughs> let's be honest. 
neither of I wouldn't recommend either of them to anybody. Uh, so I think if if you are interested in filmmaking, it's a unique opportunity to watch the same script go through two different lenses. But if you're not, if you just want to see a good horror movie, neither of these <laughs> is a good horror movie. So give it a pass. Just watch The Exorcist again and forget about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. I think the Schrader version doesn't work as an Exorcist movie and doesn't work as a horror movie. It's its its own thing. Uh, and I felt the ending for both movies kind of made them worse as well. Like, uh, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 both the endings aren't great. They, they, they don't work. Um, yes, the Harlan movie has a lot of cliches and it's very hollywood it's it's the cheesiest horror movie i've probably ever seen but it is still (laughs) a horror movie and it seems to kind of make sense more as an exorcist movie as well um in terms of like comparing them i kind of have to say that i enjoyed the harlan movie more even though it it was bad it's still bad (laughs) but it kind of still works as a horror movie um but yeah, I wouldn't. I wouldn't recommend these movies <laughs> at all. Uh, <laughs> interest. It would be interesting to see what Believer does. But um, yeah, these these movies don't don't cut it. Well, the reviews aren't great. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. And Mark Kermode was not a fan either. <laughs> and if you want an exorcist expert, you couldn't get more expert right. than that. So, yeah. Well, I suppose we ought to find out what our patrons think as well. Yeah. Hello, Hal. Yes, Conrad. Let's find out what the patrons think, please. Shockingly, our patrons were undecided. It was a tie. Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah, we had votes for Save Harlan's movie. Nobody voted to save Schrader's. Mm. Right, yeah. We had votes for people to save both, and we also had an equal number of votes to throw them both (laughs) back. So... I think there's like a slight edge for Schrader there, but um, overall, I think the sense is it's it's mm. really divisive. <laughs> Nobody can decide. Yes. Right. <laughs> so what are we going to do? <laughs> I think we got to throw it back. I think on balance we do. <laughs> Especially since like I'm the one who voted to release them and I'm not going to fight you on throwing them back. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Okay, well, the power of Christ compelled you. Get back in there. (laughs) Well, that was fascinating. Just a bizarre set of circumstances. So it was really fun to Mm. talk about. Thanks so much for joining us and talking about a surge, especially seeing as you hadn't seen yeah. these movies before. No, nope. thank you for thank you for inviting me. I, uh, you know, I never would have seen these if not for the episode. And and I'm glad I did. It's um it's been an interesting uh neither of them were particularly cathartic experiences, but it was an interesting little uh <laughs> thought experiment. Mm, mm. It, in fact, not to go off on too much of a tangent right here at the end, but I actually thought as someone who doesn't like exorcism films, I thought about how I would do one. <laughs> ah, <laughs> interesting. If nothing else comes of it, I'll I'll appreciate this experience for that. Yeah. Mm. Well, I think probably what all the sequels and prequels prove is that it's impossible to do. Mm. It seems to be. It seems like The Exorcist has kind of done that story, and apart from just mimic it or satirise it, there's nowhere to go. Yeah, 
No. Yeah, and and I I thought about watching Exorcist: The Believer. Uh, we're recording this the 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 day after it was released. I thought about going to see it last night, but I, I was reading the reviews. And I'm like, I know I'm gonna hate this movie. <laughs> it like it, <laughs> not not even necessarily because it's terrible, but it is it is so not what I look for in horror films, mm. which is um. What fear is this film speaking to? Mm-hmm. And if the best you got is, what if you were possessed by a demon? Uh, I'm not going to be interested. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It seems like all the believers got going for it is, it's two girls this time? Uh, <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's kind of been done. That's the problem. Mm, it has. Yeah. Well, it's been great having you with us talking about this. Where can people follow you and hear more of your views on movies? Uh, so you can find me YouTube. Uh, I'm, I'm Cold Crash Pictures on YouTube. That's uh, that's where all my video essays are. On socials, uh, you can find me on Instagram and, and Twitter for as long as Twitter still exists. Uh, I'm also <laughs> very recently I joined Blue Sky and TikTok. Oh. Still getting used to both of them. Still trying to figure out what to use them for. But uh I'm uh, I'm either Cold Crash Picks or Cold Crash Pictures on everything. Great. Okay. Brilliant. Well, check it out and can't wait for the next video yeah. essay. Oh, yeah, thanks. Me too. And if you want to follow Movie Oubliette, we are Movie Oubliette everywhere on all socials. And uh, you can email us at movie.oubliette at gmail.com. Please do. And if you want to support the show, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar, you can get extra extended portions of the show. For $5, you get our exclusive monthly minisodes. And for $10, you can be an executive producer. Like Serge of Gold Crash Pictures and, and Chazilla and Eddie Coulter and Isaac Sutton and Dr. Doggy. Yes, check out our, our most recent minisode where we do cover Evil Dead Rise. We do. I'm vouching for those minisodes. I watched Evil Dead Rise this morning after listening to your episode wow. on it. Ah, great. Ah, did you like it? Uh, you know, I did. It, and it does a lot of things that ho- I don't generally like when horror movies do, like on paper. Mm. Um, like there's not really a transgression uh, before this poor family gets attacked. But um, but I wound up liking it. Yeah. 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 No, it's, I it's, enjoy it's, it too. It's a, it's a well-made yeah. film. Yeah. Good gore yeah. If, you, if you like gore. Yeah. <laughs> um, we've also got merchandise on Redbubble and a YouTube channel where you can uh, watch some great video essays. But I guess, Conrad, uh, what movie are we going to do next episode? Well, it's still going to be spooky season, so we're going to be checking out a 1973 gothic supernatural horror film. The Legend of Hell House. Oh, okay. I haven't seen this one. No, me neither. It should be interesting. It's directed by John Hoff, uh, written by Richard Matheson, based on uh, Richard Matheson's novel, and it stars Pamela Franken, Roddy McDowell, Clive Revel, and Gail Hunnicutt. Right. Ah. Uh, I always like checking out sort of older haunting movies. Mm, yeah, we haven't done a haunting for a while, so this should mm-hmm. be fun. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And thanks again, Sid, for joining us on this episode. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Goodbye. Bye. 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 <laughs> we review the films others tend to forget. Come with us and open up the movie, Juliet. I'm collecting rocks. <laughs>